And now take your copy of God's Word and turn, if you will, with me to Luke chapter 19, the Gospel of Luke. Today we are entering a new stage in uh, the Gospel of Luke. I mentioned if you were with us, even if you weren't with us last week, I still mentioned it. You might not have heard it. Uh, But I mentioned last week that we were coming to the end of the travel narrative portion of Luke where uh, Jesus is now uh, not quite in Jerusalem, but in the passage that we're reading today just on the very doorstep, just about to enter Uh, And in fact, it's hard to tell whether today's passage should end at verse 27 or whether it should not go on to verse 28 so that it is uh, is bracketed on both sides with this idea that Jesus is going on up to Jerusalem. He is just about there. And today, the first passage that we see as Jesus is on the doorstep of Jerusalem uh, is this very familiar parable of the ten minas. You may pronounce it minas or minas. I'll try to stick to one of those, but uh, you, may, you may pick whichever you choose. Uh, do not confuse this with a, another very well-known parable, the parable of the talents. That shows up in Matthew chapter 25. They're very similar. They're very well-known, both of them, but they were told at different times. They were told for different reasons, and in each one, Jesus has a slightly different emphasis. We'll look at that a little bit uh, as we go along, but today, the parable of the ten minas, Luke chapter 19, and we'll read today from verse 11. On to verse 27. You can find that if you've not already on page 878 of most ESVs. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Uh, Let's read together and then we'll seek God's blessing as, uh, as we study. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more, uh, that to everyone who has, excuse me, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please join me in a word of prayer, seeking his blessing uh, on our study together. Let's pray. 
Gracious Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would give us faith to believe in the Savior who spoke these words, who spoke them about himself and about his kingdom, and we pray that giving us faith, you would also give us faithfulness to you, that we should be about the work of your kingdom until you return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, in, in the world of digital currency, uh, May the 22nd is known as Bitcoin Pizza Day. I don't know if you're aware of, of this holiday, Bitcoin Pizza Day. That is uh, the day, May 22nd, the day in 2010, 2010, that Laszlo Hanyets made the first commercial transaction involving Bitcoin. Uh, Laszlo got on a cryptocurrency uh, forum, uh, an exchange, and he offered to pay somebody 10,000 Bitcoin to have two pizzas, two Papa John's pizzas, delivered to his home. At the time, uh, his offering of 10,000 Bitcoin was about 41 bucks. Uh, and as of this weekend, uh, with uh, Bitcoin trading just about at $60,000, last I checked, uh, that would amount to almost $600 million. Uh, and uh, you've heard, I'm sure, about Bitcoin's meteoric rise and, and the rise of the cryptocurrencies and how it seems to have come out of nowhere and just skyrocketed. And, and as soon as Elon Musk gets on it, everybody wants a piece of the action, and now it's just going through the roof. And along this rise, there have been uh, investors who've made fortunes in millions and in billions. There have also been investors who have lost their hat. Uh, but far more prevalent are the many people standing on the sidelines playing the game of Bitcoin what-if. In fact, uh, there is uh, a website for just that game. What if you bought Bitcoin.com? Uh, it offers you a simple calculator. Uh, it is tied to the daily market value, and it's simply a website where you can enter a dollar amount and a date sometime in the past, and it will tell you if you invested this much on that date, this is what your Bitcoin would be worth today. And so if you're interested in playing Bitcoin, what if, what if I had invested, you can, you can do that. It will tell you what it is worth today, but what it cannot tell you is what your Bitcoin might be worth tomorrow. I can't tell you what it might be worth 10 years from now. I can't tell you what it will be worth when uh, the world moves on to the next big thing. And that is the problem with all high-risk investments. The problem is that the investment you make today may be a mint tomorrow, but then again, it might be worse than worthless. That is why we call a fortune a fortune, by the way, as though it, it rises and it falls with the tides of luck and chance and the unpredictable nature of the market. I know there are algorithms. I, I know there are data scientists, and there are those who who make predictions and models, and sometimes they do a pretty good job of plotting out where the market might be headed, but it's always been true that only someone who can read the future knows exactly which investments are good to make. Well, on the road from Jerusalem uh, to Jericho, or rather from Jericho up to Jerusalem, Jesus was surrounded by a group of people who thought they knew what the future held. He was surrounded by a group of people who anticipated that all of their messianic hopes about an Israel that was free and strong and prosperous, they were all about to be realized. He was surrounded by a group of people who were invested in the kind of political kingdom they thought Jesus was about to bring when he entered into the holy city. 
And so Jesus told this parable to correct their expectations. He told this parable to give them a different timeline, one that stretched a lot longer than they were prepared for. He, he told this parable to let them know that they were going to have to wait and to tell them exactly how to invest themselves in the kingdom while they're waiting. This is a pretty long parable. Lots of details and lots of characters, but really it comes down, it, it can be boiled down to two main points, two halves of this parable. This parable shows us what we should do while we wait for the return of Jesus. It also shows us what to expect when Jesus returns. That's how we're going to look at this passage today. What we should do while we wait for the return of King Jesus and what we ought to expect when he gets back. Our first point uh, is that until King Jesus returns, what should we do? Well, we should be about the work of his kingdom. This is another one of these texts that we've seen recently that as we turn to the text in the very beginning, it feels like familiar territory. It feels like something we've seen already because here is Jesus just on the cusp of Jerusalem and yet again, he seems to be the only person who's in on the secret of what's actually going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. And you can see this difference in approach in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Of course, they were all near to Jerusalem if they were all walking with Jesus, but Luke singles out here this division here. He is near to Jerusalem, and they're caught up in their fantasies and their expectations. They're all headed to the same place, but they're going there for a different reason. Jesus is going up to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners, and the crowds gathered around him expect that they are going up to a coronation ceremony. That is why, if you look at the text in the very next passage, the triumphal entry, Luke tells us, Luke chapter 19, verse 38, that all the crowds went before him, saying explicitly, blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, they were right, of course. Jesus is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what he told uh, the Pharisees. He told the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is in your midst. That is, it's present because the king is present. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, the king of glory, was coming near. And so they were right. It was true. But it was also true that the kingdom wasn't coming in quite the same way and at quite the same time that they expected. And so Jesus tells this parable to prepare them for a delay in the kingdom of God. Verse 12, he said, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And that whole uh, arrangement would have been pretty familiar for the Jews. You remember King Herod the Great. He, he was the last person to be labeled the king of the Jews, but he got that title not from the Jews, he got it from Rome. Now, the Senate conferred that title uh, on King Herod the Great. He was the king of the Jews, and they sent him back to rule over his own people. In fact, after Herod died, he divided his kingdom between his sons, and his son Archelaus uh, made the journey. He traveled 1,500 miles to Rome to petition Caesar Augustus to try and make himself king as well. So when Jesus speaks of a nobleman traveling to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return, the people knew what he's talking about. He's talking about a kingdom that isn't quite ready yet. It's not all done. There are, there are still some issues to be ironed out, a few more details to be put in place. And he's telling them 
that there's going to be a delay in the kingdom, and quite frankly, it might be longer than anybody expects. It is a far country, he says. That's why in the parable, uh, the nobleman prepares his estate for this delay by gathering his servants and giving them all something to do. He gives them a duty. Now, here's where we need to make sure we don't confuse this parable with the parable of the talents, because the parable of the talents there uh, says that uh, the kingdom of God is like a man who went on a journey and gathered his servants, and he gave them gifts, each according to their ability. So you recall there that one uh, servant received uh, five talents, another servant received two talents, another servant received one talent, each one according to their own ability. Well, that isn't what happens here. Uh, in this parable, uh, ability doesn't fit into it. it. It's that each one, uh, each servant receives the same modest amount. Not talents, not, not, not mountains of gold, but just about three months' worth of wages for the typical day wage uh, earner. He was, they were each given a mina, they were each given about three months' worth of wages, and they were each told to put it to work, to be busy for the sake of their master. Now, you need to notice that that this is not given to them as a gift, but rather it's given to them as an investment. Sometimes uh, fathers go away on long business trips, and if you have young children at home, you might give a gift to your child. You you present your daughter with a brand new teddy bear, a token of your love, something that she can hold on to and squeeze and hug and remember her father until he returns, and it's something that she wants to keep safe and put away, and it's just for her, that's not the, the picture here. It's not a gift just for the servants. It's an investment. This is not a teddy bear. This is a rake. This is dad leaving in the morning and handing his son a rake and saying, when I get home, I expect the backyard to be cleaned. There's a job to be done. He, he gives them something, uh, and he expects his investment to be put to work. He called ten servants, gave them ten minas, said, engage in business until I come. Now, hopefully already you can see the parallels that Jesus is making with the kingdom of God. You know the gospel story. You know where the rest of the gospel of Luke is going. As Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, he is preparing his people for the delay between his earthly ministry and his heavenly majesty. Jesus Christ is is headed to Jerusalem, but he's not going up to be robed in in scarlet. He's not going up to be a crowned with a crown of gold. He's going up to be uh, crowned with a crown of thorns and, and robed in shame and dishonor. He's not going up to be enthroned, but he's going up to be executed. He's going up to suffer God's wrath on behalf of God's people. And he will be resurrected on the third day. Yes, he'll be, he'll be raised again in triumph, but even then he's going to go away from his servants. He's going to go into a far place. He's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. He's going to sit at the right hand of power. He's going to wait until that day when all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And there's a day when he will come back. Our king will return in glory, but until then we wait as well. And while we wait for his return, Christ's servants should be about the work of his kingdom. Now the question is, what is the work of the kingdom? What does that look like? How do we take God's talent and, and put it to work, or take this mina, this investment that he's given, and, and put it to work. What does the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom work, look like? Well, it looks like a lot of things. It might be uh, individual, might be depend on where you are, the opportunities that God has given you for service. 
for some of us, the, the work of the kingdom is standing in pulpits, uh, preaching the word of God. For others, the, the work of the kingdom is raising children and the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And, and for others, it's serving your parents and serving with compassion, even as they get older and they get sicker and, and they get uh, a little harder to deal with. But you serve them because you're serving Jesus and because he's called you to be his ambassador and he's called you to have a witness even in your family. For some of us, uh, the work of the kingdom is giving up on our plans for a comfortable future. It might be going to serve Christ in foreign missions. For others, it's giving up our dreams of respectability. It's letting our coworkers know uh, that our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own. But body and soul, life and death, we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes that's the work of the kingdom, simply letting others know and telling them uh, what your hope is and, and where your hope lies. At some stages in your life, the work of the kingdom might be different. Some stages in your life, the work of the kingdom might be, might be energetic. It might be act, uh, full of activity. It might be a bold public witness for Christ. And then as you move into a different stage of life, it might be quieter. It might be intercession, it might be thanksgiving, it might be quietly clinging to the promises of God, and that's okay. Because the Lord has faithful work for all of his servants and in all of his different places that he puts them. And the work of the kingdom takes a lot of different forms, but for each and every one of us, the work of the kingdom involves humility, and it involves faithfully believing in our king and bearing witness until he returns. The work of the kingdom is the daily duty of making his priorities our priorities. It is the call, as, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we should guard the good deposit entrusted to us. You see, Jesus is the one who's made the real investment in the kingdom. He's invested himself in his death and his resurrection, but he's also made an investment in a band of of people with grace in their hearts and the gospel on their lips. And until our King Jesus returns, his servants should be about the work of the kingdom. That's what we should do until he returns. Because when our Lord comes back, he's coming to settle his accounts. And that's what we ought to expect. This is the second half of the passage, though it's the much larger half, uh, that we should expect that when King Jesus returns, he's going to come with reward and with judgment. We learn in, in verse 15 that when the nobleman returns, the first priority he has is to check on the kind of progress that his servants have made while he's been away. Verse 15, he called them to himself that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now, of course, in this parable, only uh, three of the servants are presented to us, but these three servants, and between them we see a spectrum of, of dependability that, that uh, can be seen in the king's subjects. There were some servants who were faithful, and there was a servant who was faithless. There were servants who were diligent and, and even successful to varying degrees, and there was one servant who gave no thought to fulfilling the command of his master. Or we could simply say, uh, according to the language of the parable, that there were good servants and there was a wicked servant. And each of those uh, is, is helpful to teach a lesson to God's people. Consider the faithful servants, the good servants, 
who show up in verses 16 to 19 of the passage. The first thing that you notice about these men who come when, when the master calls them to account, the first thing you notice about them is their incredible humility about the work that they had been doing. Think about it. One of them managed uh, to receive a 1,000% return on his labors, and the other one made a mere 500% return. In the age of, of crypto, we've, we've started to almost yawn at returns like that, but not in this day. This, is, this has nothing to do with market volatility. It has nothing to do with picking the right numbers and watching them skyrocket. This is a mark here of, uh, of a servant who can be trusted, a servant who is diligent, a servant who has wise dealing. In the ancient world, if you could make a tenfold return on your master's money, you were destined for great things, for admiration, for the joy of your master. You almost expect them to swagger into the presence of their master and say, look what I did while you were gone. But they come in humility. Each one of them refuses to take the credit for what they've done and for what they've received. They humbly lay their earnings at the master's feet and they almost ascribe the growth to to the investment that the master has made. Do you, do you notice what it says there? The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. That all the power was, was in the investment that the master made in the first place, and all they had to do was, was to send it out and, and let it work, and it was as though it was growing by itself, and that's the way the gospel grows. Jesus told another parable in, in Mark chapter 4 about a farmer who scatters seed on his field and he says there in Mark 4 27 the farmer sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows he knows not how it's out there and it's it's doing its thing and day by day and first first the blade and then the stalk and then the grain and it's it's fullness and it's how the word of God grows in the hearts of his people there are farmers that go out and they scatter the seed and there are laborers who who water the fields and, and there are harvesters who gather the grain, but all the increase belongs to the Lord of the harvest. All the growth is His. And yet somehow when, when Christ returns, He's going to be pleased to shower rewards upon His servants for the tiny role they had to play in the growth of His kingdom. Verse 17, he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. Can you imagine? The nobleman returns, and the nobleman has become a king. And so what does he do? He takes his servants and he makes them noblemen. He gives them charge over cities. He takes them from managing maybe a few thousand dollars to managing a few thousand souls in, in cities and towns and, and districts around the area. It is wildly disproportionate to the value they've contributed to the work of the kingdom. And yet that's how the king works. He loves to honor servants in whom he delights. He loves to reward his steadfast servants with even greater faithfulness, even greater usefulness in his kingdom. And remember here, of course, we're dealing with a parable. And there's a difference between the picture and the reality. And Jesus is not saying that, that when he returns, we'll all get to reign and rule over our own tiny little kingdoms. We're not Mormons. That's not what we believe. And yes, there are scriptures that speak about uh, Christians reigning with him and speak about uh, judging angels. And, but 
we need to remember that our eternal reward does not focus on how much power saints will get to wield in God's kingdom. German theologian Helmut Thielicke, he put it this way, he said, heaven does not consist in what we shall receive, whether that may be white robes or, or heavenly crowns or ambrosia and nectar. Rather, heaven consists in what we shall become, namely companions of our King. And when Christ returns, he's going to come back with reward and with judgment. And the reward for faithful servants will be greater usefulness, greater faithfulness, greater honor in his kingdom because we will be his and we will be with him. On the other hand, the judgment for those who are found faithless will be shame and destitution. Now the, the servant of Verse 20 is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Now it's worth noticing that this man does not come lamenting honest yet unfruitful labor. Sometimes that happens. The Lord is sovereign over his harvest. One man plants and another one reaps, but the Lord gives the increase, and sometimes the Lord doesn't give much increase, even though there are laborers in the vineyard and they're working and slaving under the heat of the day. Sometimes there are pastors who preach in pulpits for decades and they never see revival. Sometimes there are parents who raise their children with tears and faith and scripture and prayer, and they never see their children come to the Lord. This is not telling us that this man worked and he strived and he sought to serve the Lord but didn't make any return. This isn't just about unsuccessful labor. Now, this is a so-called servant who actually doesn't care about serving his master at all. You can tell because of this lame excuse that he gives for why he was unprofitable, why he, he was so negligent. He said he left the mina in the napkin because I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, you reap what you do not sow. In other words, he, he thought the king was a tight-fisted money grabber. He thought he was somebody who doesn't value the contributions of his helpers. He thought he was someone who never gives anyone else a leg up in business, who's always looking to make a buck off of somebody else's back. And the charge is false on the surface. And think about the initial investment that the, the master made, and it was all his, all the capital belonged to him. In fact, the servants belonged to him. And when he returned, he gave lavish gifts to those who, who served him well. Everything about the master shouts generosity, but it doesn't matter. This is how faithless servants always excuse their disobedience. J.C. Ryle put it this way, he said, hard thoughts of God are a common mark of all unconverted people. First, they misrepresent him, and then they excuse themselves for not loving and serving him. Well, of course, I couldn't serve a God like that. You know what he's like, don't you? And they twist his character, and they misrepresent him, and then it's okay just to, to sit on whatever he's given. It'd be enough to condemn this servant with the original command, wouldn't it? Engage in business. Well, no, he didn't. 
It would be enough just to stop there and say that he was unfaithful. He did not meet his master's demands. But the master points out that he's even failed to meet his own declared fears. Notice how uh, incongruous this is, how, how disjointed. If he really feared the master, if the master was such a harsh man, such a severe man, don't you think that might have motivated him a little bit? If he really believed the master is as severe as he claimed, he would have done something. He would have done anything to have some pittance to offer when the king returned. I mean, even a low-yield savings account would be better than just stuffing the money under the mattress. Even taking it and giving it to the banks would get some little tiny percentage that he could turn back around and, and hand it to the master. But uh, simply putting it in a handkerchief was doing exactly nothing. It required no boldness, it required no risk, it required no effort, it required no service, and that's exactly what this servant wanted. He wanted to give no service to his master. In gospel terminology, this would be like taking the light of the world and hiding it under a bushel basket. This would be like taking the salt of the earth and throwing it out in the ground to be trampled. It showed that, that not only did he did he not actually fear his king and his master, but he didn't even respect him. And that leads us, I think, to the only logical question we can ask about this third servant. And that is whether he was really a servant at all. The scholars like to debate this. They, they like to go back and forth, and, and they wonder, maybe, uh, maybe to leave the realm of, of metaphor, the, the realm of parable, they, they like to debate whether this disciple was actually a disciple of Christ. They want to know, was he one of these uh, poor kinds of Christians who were saved at the day of Christ, but only as through fire, or was he an out-and-out -out rebel? Does he represent a Christian in name only? Is, his a, is he a false disciple headed for destruction? Well, how can we answer that question? It helps, I think, to consider that group that we passed over already in verse 14. Uh, that group of, of, of citizens when the nobleman went to secure the kingdom, we're told in verse 14 that his citizens hated him. They sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, this was another feature that would have been familiar to the Jews. You, you remember Herod's son Archelaus. Well, when uh, he made that trip up to Rome, 1,500 miles from Judea, uh, to petition Caesar Augustus to be given the title of king, he had an entourage that went with him, but he also had an entourage that the Jews sent behind him. See, Archelaus was so hated by the Jews for a massacre in the temple some years before that they sent 50 elders of the people up to also speak before the emperor to say, no, 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 please, whatever you do, do not make this man our king. And not only 50 elders of the people, but 80 members of Herod's family and when he got there, more than 3,000 Jewish Christians living in Rome also showed up before Herod, or before Caesar, rather, to say, whatever you do, please do not make this man our king. We do not want him to reign over us. It didn't work. Not exactly. He was never given the title king, but, but he was sent back as what is known as an ethnarch. One more of these, these puppet rulers to to hang on the strings of Rome and, and to, uh, to feed more 
uh, more tribute and into the empire to do all the bidding of the empire. And then back in Judea, Archelaus began systematically silencing everybody who had opposed him. Now as Jesus and, and this crowd went up from Jericho to Jerusalem, they passed Archelaus's winter palace on the road there, close to Jerusalem. And so maybe as they're going, many of the people were thinking about all the scandal and all the rebellion in the Herodian family. But more to the point, Jesus is using that dynamic as a warning that the business of the kingdom is always carried out in enemy territory. There are more categories than, than just faithful servants and unfaithful servants. There are also enemies of the kingdom. There are outright rebels of the king. There are those who refuse to have him reigning over them. And by the end of this very week, they're going to come out of the woodwork. John chapter 19, Pilate brought Jesus out and said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. In other words, we will not have this man ruling over us. I love the NIV translation of Luke chapter 19, verse 15. If you have it in front of you, 14 ends. We do not want this man to rule over us. And verse 15 in the NIV says, he was made king, however. He was made king, however, and returned. Now, despite the desires of the rebels, the true king is crowned. And he's given glory, and he's, he's given might, and he's given power to judge. And when he returns, verse 27, all those who hate him will face destruction at the hands of the king they tried to deny. Oh, what then about this faithful servant, faithless servant, rather? Is he merely idle, or is he an insurrectionist? Is he an enemy, or does he merely lack the proper motivation? Oh, what would you say? What would you call a servant who ignores the commands of his master? What would you call someone who who doesn't even begin to attempt to pretend obedience to the king at a bare minimum? What do you call someone who refuses to be told what to do and how to live and how to bow the knee to the master? Well, in the parable, Jesus calls him wicked. He's another one of the many who, either by his words or by his actions, says that he will not have this king to rule over him. I see it's a solemn warning. Even as Jesus is going up to the place where he is going to make a sacrifice for sinners, even as he goes up to the place where he's going to prove God's generous love for us in this, that while we were yet his enemies, he dies for us. But the warning even here is that even in the face of such generosity, there are many who will refuse to bow, who will refuse to serve, who will refuse to call him master. Carl Robbins suggests that this passage divides humanity into three categories. There are the faithless, there are the foes, and there are the false. But in the end, when Christ returns, there really will only be two categories. When King Jesus returns, he will come with reward, and he will come with judgment. 
On that day, he will say one of exactly two things to each and every one of us. On that day of his judgment, you will either hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Or you will hear those terrible words from the Savior himself, I never knew you. May the Lord give us faith to invest in his kingdom. May he give us grace to be about the work while we wait for the return of our King Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, sometimes we need a solemn warning, which is why you have placed so many in your word. Maybe a warning that we've heard already and responded to. We praise you for so many faithful servants here, gathered together, gathered in your name. We pray that you would use this solemn warning to keep us looking to you as a, a part of your sovereign work to preserve your people, to give us perseverance. Oh Lord, we pray that if there are any who have not responded, who are yet still a foe, that they would come, not just desiring to do the work of the kingdom, but to bow the knee to the king, to trust in his death and his resurrection, to believe that he is the Lord of life and the giver of all good gifts. Oh Lord, help us and keep us. Help us to walk with you until you come again. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.